So when Pastor Andy told me he was going to be gone for a couple of weeks, they're over in Ohio getting to love on their new grandbaby and uh, just visit their son and daughter-in-law. We, we kind of discussed what uh, we would kind of have taught. And so he asked me what text I was thinking about preaching on. And uh, we're going to be looking at the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6. And as we discussed kind of the, the topic that we were going to be looking at, we decided that the series theme would be a new season. We thought it would be fitting. For a couple of reasons, actually. First, it's because we all go through new seasons, and I'm not just talking about fall, winter, spring, and all those. But instead, no matter who you are, no matter what age you are at, there will always be new seasons of life, new situations that are thrown at us. So we've already mentioned it a few times this morning. School is starting yet again. Maybe some of our students are going from middle school to high school. Uh, this year, we had a few students graduate from high school, and they're starting college. Some of them have moved away for college. New seasons can be exciting. Maybe it's a new relationship, a new job. But just like any new season, sometimes new seasons aren't always that great. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one. Maybe it's losing a job. Maybe it's financially trying times. To use a similar situation or one of the same situations that were good, maybe your first child is moving out of the house and you're facing a new season. These new seasons create a lot of emotions and a lot of feelings that come with it. Maybe it's fear, excitement. Maybe there's some hurt. Now, new seasons are something everyone faces. But the challenge for us, for people who believe, we have to ask ourselves, where do I cling to for hope no matter what season I face? Now, if you've grown up in the church or maybe you just see this coming a mile away, obviously you know that the answer is going to be you cling to Jesus. But I mean, I've got way more time than five minutes, so I've got I've to dig a little deeper than that. So we're, we're actually going to explore why is it Christ? Why is our hope found in God in the midst of new seasons? And what are some of the challenges that we face with this? Now, the second reason we thought that this would be a good theme, a new season would be a good theme, is because the people of God, the people of Israel in the book of Deuteronomy, they are not uh, new when it comes to new seasons. They've experienced a lot up to this point, and they're getting ready for another new season, a major new season in their life. They're going to be entering into the land that God promised them, that he actually promised to Abraham 400 plus years earlier. Now, they should have been in here 40 years earlier, but because of disobedience, because of rebellion, because of their hardness of hearts, God allowed them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Now, just for a quick recap up to this point, okay, and by quick, I mean very, very brief. Uh, if you want to know the full story, I'd encourage you to read Exodus through Deuteronomy. Sometimes it can feel like a dry read, but you'll get the context, I tell you. Okay, so Exodus starts off, the people of God, they are enslaved. God hears the cry of his people, and he sends Moses to go and deliver them, saying, let my people go. This is what the Lord says. Pharaoh says no. Ten different times, God sends plagues to change Pharaoh's mind. Pharaoh's heart is hardened to where eventually the last one is the most severe plague, and Pharaoh finally gives in. He says, fine, go. But when they, when they leave, Pharaoh changes his mind. 
And he sends soldiers. He goes after them and the people are stuck at the Red Sea. There's nowhere to go. They call on the Lord. Moses sticks his staff in the Red Sea and the sea parts. And the people go through safely and God brings the sea back down on Pharaoh and his men, defeating their enemies. And what happens next is a major theme for God's relationship with his people in the wilderness. Because they're so excited. They're like, oh my word, God has provided. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. He has been phenomenal to us. And then they reach a point where they're running low on water. And their tune changes so fast. We don't even get to another chapter at this point. This is Exodus chapter 15. They run out of water and they turn to Moses. And they're like, Moses, did you bring us out here to die? It would have been better if we stayed in Egypt. Yeah, we were miserable. Yeah, we were slowly dying. We were no better than possessions to these people, but at least we had three square meals a day. At least we knew where we could lay our heads. That sounds crazy to us. But so often when things get uncomfortable, when we follow God, we turn to things that are familiar. We turn to things that we can see and we feel like we can control. This happens many times between God and his people. They experience hardship. They're not sure how God's going to provide. And so they complain and they think it's better to turn back to what was slowly killing them instead. Now over and over again this happens till there comes a point where they're getting close to the promised land and they send 12 spies to go investigate the promised land. Two of them come back with the fruit of the land and they're like, guys, this is amazing. God is providing for us. Look, look at what this land can produce. God is going to be with us. And everyone's like, okay, that's cool. But then the 10 spies are like, not worth it. The people are huge. There is a lot of them. We are going to die if we do this. And the people are discouraged by the report of the 10 spies. And they actually try to create a rebellion to go back to Egypt. But Moses and Aaron and Joshua and Caleb, who are the two good spies, they actually plea for the people to the Lord. And God says, fine, I'm not going to wipe them out. Because he actually tells Moses, you're right, let's just wipe them out start over. These people are stubborn. You're right, Moses. But Moses actually pleads for the people. And God says, fine, I won't wipe them out, but this generation will not get to go into the promised land. They will wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And it'll be their children and their grandchildren that go into the promised land. So, middle of Numbers to Deuteronomy is them wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And the generation, the older generation that came from Egypt, experienced a lot of these things. They, they are dying in the wilderness. And their children are the ones who are going to go into the promised land. Does this sound like a lot of rough seasons? A little bit later... The people, again, they run out of water and they complain and God creates a plan with Moses and Aaron and he says, you see that rock? I want you to speak to the rock because that's not going to make you look crazy, right? But I want you to speak to the rock and I'm going to bring water from that rock. And Moses, when he, when he comes back to approach the people and he hears their bickering and their anger, he gets angry with them. And he makes this statement, he says, should we strike this rock and bring you water? Moses, in his anger, he disobeys God. He doesn't speak to it. He hits it. And his language, he says, should we bring you water? Not should God bring you water. One of my favorite parts of this story is water still comes from the rock. That even in Moses' disobedience, God is faithful and he provides. 
What a gracious God. But it's at this point that God tells Moses and Aaron, he says, because of your disobedience, because of your hardness of hearts, you also will not get to go into the promised land. And at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses actually is brought up to this mountain to where he gets to see it, but he doesn't get to enter it, and he dies at the end of Deuteronomy. This is the background to Deuteronomy, right? Very cheery so far, okay? The people of God have been through a lot up to this point. And so Deuteronomy, actually, uh, I think a fitting subheading for the book of Deuteronomy would be this. Remember how you got here. The first four chapters of Deuteronomy, Moses is kind of doing a recap for the people. Saying, remember who brought you from Egypt? It wasn't you. It was God. Remember who provided for you in the wilderness? Again, it wasn't you. It was God. Remember why you had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years? Oh yeah, that was because of us. Remember how you got here. Through every season, when you relied on yourselves, things got messy. When you relied on God, he showed up. He was faithful over and over and over again. Remember how you got here. And actually, the book, or the word Deuteronomy, it literally means second law. And it's not God adding to the law, but it's a second telling of God's instructions to his people because there is a generation that does not know what Egypt was like because they were not there. There's a generation that maybe didn't even experience God on Mount Sinai giving the law. Moses is reminding the people God's instruction. This is why Deuteronomy chapter 5, we see a second reading of the Ten Commandments. He's reminding them that the reason why there was a 40-year delay, the reason why you guys are the ones entering in and not your parents and grandparents, is because of the hardness of hearts, because you didn't trust the Lord your God. And the reason why you are here is because God is still faithful. He's not given up on you. This leads us to Deuteronomy chapter 6, where it starts with this. Oh, let me turn on the clicker. That would help. These are the commands, decrees, and regulations that the Lord your God commanded to me to teach you. You must obey them in the land you are about to enter and occupy. And you and your children and your grandchildren must fear the Lord your God as long as you live. If you obey all these decrees and commands, you will enjoy a long life. Listen closely, Israel, and be careful to obey. Then all will go well with you. And you will have many children in the land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Moses has shown them that God has been faithful. Remember how you got here. The reason why there's been delay, the reason why there's been hardship is because you guys have made it hard on yourselves for the most part. Obviously, there are things like sickness and death that come in, but for the most part, it's because of the disobedience of the people. Because they've looked at other things that they are where they're at now. And it's because of God that they are still going to enter into the promised land. He's reminding them that God's instructions for them are not just him bossing them around, but it's his design for how people were made to live. Here he reminds them that as they go into the promised land, they need to remember to follow God's instructions. He tells them that if they do so, they will have a full and long life. Now, this is not like a prosperity gospel kind of thing, but rather he, he's saying that your life will be full and you'll have purpose. God will provide. He is with you. 
He's not saying that there will not be sickness or death because there's still a broken world that we live in. He's saying that, th- that his way is the best way anyone can live. God is the one who brings meaning to life. He's the one who brings purpose because he is the one who made all things. Now who wouldn't want this for themselves, for their children, and for their grandkids? It's at this point that we really need to lean in and hear what it takes to have this full and purpose-filled life no matter what season we face. We continue on. This is our main text here. Deuteronomy 6 verses 4 through 5. Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. Now other translations might say the Lord is one, but the NLT really gets the heart of this text. God is saying that as his people are entering this new season, they are to remember that he is the only one worthy of worship. They have come from a culture in Egypt that has many gods. And the land they're going into to conquer has many gods. In fact, in Numbers, after they were told they had to wander in the wilderness, they run into some Canaanites who are actually from the promised land. And they introduce them to some of their gods that they worship. And it says the Israelites just start worshiping them. They didn't need convincing. They weren't hard to sell on it. They just begin to worship other gods. And God brings, uh, he, he corrects them and he instructs them that this is not how it is. So again, this is, remember how you got here. I'm the only one. I've gone up against the gods of Egypt and I came out on top. I'm the only one worthy of worship. And if we think that this is just what God is saying, when it comes to following Jesus, did you know Jesus makes a pretty extreme statement, statement like this as well? He actually tells them, and actually I'll get to that in a little bit here. I'm getting ahead of myself. But you think that this would be easy for them to grasp, right? Jesus even says that this is the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and strength. That that is the greatest commandment. Love him with everything that you have. You think that this would be a no-brainer for people who have seen God show up over and over and over again. But this is something that they are tempted to go against. Where even uh, an example, Exodus 32. So Moses has gone up to Mount Sinai to receive God's instruction. And the people of God are getting antsy. Because they see God's power on full display on Mount Sinai. And the reason why it's just Moses hearing it is because they got scared. And they kind of booted him up front. They're like, you go talk to him. He's a little scary. And Moses is up there for 40 days and, and they're getting nervous. They're getting antsy. They, they want to worship something, but they're not sure if, if Yahweh is the one to worship because he's, he's scary. He's, well, powerful. He's the one true God. And so they turn to Aaron and they're like, Aaron, make us a God that we can worship. And they turn to their gold and they give it to Aaron and Aaron makes a golden calf. And Aaron says, behold, the gods who brought you out of Egypt... And they begin to worship this golden image. There are other moments in their time of the wilderness where they worship false gods. And God is reminding them, he says, I'm the one who got you here. Every hiccup you've had is because you've turned to other things and they did not satisfy. They were not enough. Now, unfortunately, when they enter into the promised land, we see they turn to other gods. 
Some of the major names that we see in, later on in the Old Testament are gods like Baal and Asherah and Molech. And they are not enough, but they still worship them because they are more convenient than the God of heaven. One of my favorite examples, it's a well-known story, 1 Kings 18. It's the prophet Elijah challenging the prophets of Baal. They're on Mount Carmel, and they have basically a, a sacrifice off, if I can say that, right? They create two altars, and Elijah says, we pray to our gods, let's see which one answers. And wouldn't you know it, it's only the one true God. Baal is silent. Elijah actually taunts them. He's like, maybe he's busy. Maybe you're not crying out loud enough, right? And, and they try, and they try and get Baal's attention, but nothing happens, and God's the one who shows up. But we see that they continually turn back to Baal. And before we look at them and shake our heads, like this is such a foolish thing to do, our hearts do the same thing. God is reminding his people he is the one true God. The only one who has shown up for them over and over and over again. The only one who is strong enough to provide for them. The only one they will ever need. Now the main point I want us to glean from this, and please don't check out after I tell you the main point, because there's more. But it's this, worship God in every season. Look to him for hope in every season. This seems straightforward, but it gets complicated. It's a very exclusive statement to say that he is the only God. This is where we get to the text where Jesus says something similar. Luke 14, 26 through 27. He says this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. I have heard atheists say that this is the reason why they don't follow Jesus. Because of a statement like this. Now Jesus doesn't literally mean that following him means that you hate everything but him. He means that our commitment to him as Lord of our lives needs to be total to the point that our commitment to everything else pales in comparison. Like I said, this is an extremely exclusive statement. God requires our total commitment and our worship. We have to ask ourselves, is he worth it? Does he deserve this total commitment? The truth of the matter is, we were made to worship. We were actually talking about this in Sunday school. There's a a theologian and philosopher, he said it this way. There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God, the creator made known through Jesus Christ. I want us to imagine this. There's an altar in the heart of every person. I brought up, maybe you're wondering why this table is up here. Let's say this is the altar of your heart. Only one thing can go here. This is at the center of your life. Everything else has to work around this. Your job, your family, everything. This is the center. This is what is most important. And it's really, uh, only God is big enough to fulfill this spot. But when God's not there, we try to fill it with other things. Things that were never meant to take that place in our hearts. Because the thing about this altar, everything we do, everything we think, everything we say is filtered through what we put here. 
And if it's not God, it will lead us in the wrong directions. Whatever we put here that is not God will let us down. Paul put it, Paul put it this way in Romans 12, 1. He said this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Worship happens when we give ourselves fully to something above everything else in our lives. Today, we don't need temples or golden calves or literal altars to worship false gods. Today, they are much more secretive. They take the shape of loved ones, leaders, jobs, money, possessions, power, popularity, entertainment, self-image, and so much more. Now, please hear me. I'm not saying these things are bad. God designed family. He made us for work. He gives us authority as leaders. He creates the places in the world that we like to visit, and he does not hate possessions. What I'm saying is that these make horrible gods. When we put them on the altar of our hearts, they promise much, but they never deliver on that promise. Substances like alcohol and drugs might promise an escape from problems, but they will never satisfy. They will always leave you wanting more. You will be left wanting, and your problems will still be there. A girlfriend or boyfriend or spouse or even children might feel like they will complete you, but they are just searching for, fulfill, for fulfillment just like you. People were never meant to fulfill us. They are just as broken as we are. Money might give the promise of security, but there will always be something that costs. Just like that verse I mentioned before, I love how Proverbs says it, it will sprout wings and fly away. It is not a guarantee. Possessions are fun, but there will always be something newer or better that we could trade those things for. And they will never satisfy. We could spend more time looking at things like how we want people to see us, our self-image, or what all of our time and money goes into. But I hope we're beginning to see the point. Again, please hear me. These things are not bad by themselves. God created marriage and family. He made us to work, but these things need to be put in their proper place around the altar, not on it. Anything and anyone can be made into a false god when we turn to them for help, when we should be turning it to God for that. If you want a convicting read on this topic, I know that's always a fun thing you're looking for. I'd recommend a book by Kyle Eidelman, Gods at War. And he really tries to identify modern day gods that we try and trade for God. Actually, in this book, he says a couple of things. The first one is this. We were made for God, and until he is our greatest pleasure, all other pleasures of this life will lead to emptiness. Or in another, in another section of the book, he says it this way. The object of your worship will determine your future and define your life. It is the one choice that all other choices are motivated by. This means that everything in your life is under submission to whatever is here. You will sacrifice everything else in life for whatever is on the altar of your heart. I always like to think of it this way. Uh, I'm not much of a bike rider, but I do drive and different things like that. Whatever object I steer, uh, wherever I look, I tend to kind of steer towards. When I'm on a bike, it's dangerous because <laughs> I am not the most stable person on a bike. 
I try and keep my face forward so I don't crash. But sometimes I'll like look to the right and I just feel myself start turning that way. It's the same thing. Wherever you look, that determines the direction of your life. And if you look to anything but God for hope, if you look to anything but God for a purpose, it will steer you in the wrong direction. God is claiming that if he is not in this place, then you will not be satisfied. This is a serious claim. Again, we have to ask, how is he worthy of this? First, and this seems pretty simple, but I think it's the most important one, he's the creator and designer of all things. The way I tell the youth group, if someone designs a product and gives it to someone, does the person who designed it get to say how that product was meant to be used or the person they gave it to? It's the designer who defines the purpose of whatever they make. God is the only source of true joy and fulfillment. God knows how life was meant to be lived. Paul echoes this picture in Romans 1. He talks about how the world and our sinful desires try to reverse this order. Just like how anyone who designs a product, again, they get to define the purpose of the creation. God is the one who should define how we live, what is good and what is bad. What we're tempted to do is swap the order, to worship the created rather than the creator. God is worthy because he is Lord, because he is creator. He is the author and perfecter of all things. He is above everything else. He is worthy because he is the only one greater than anything in this world. A second reason, God is worthy because he provides. Later on, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 10 through 14, God tells them, he says, when you enter into this promised land, when the people are gone and you live in homes that you did not build, and you drink from wells that you did not dig, remember who provided that for you. You didn't win those battles on your own. Remember how you got here. It wasn't because you're all that smart. <laughs> it wasn't because you are mighty. That without God, you would have been slaves in Egypt, just miserably getting by. But by the power of God, he's established you as his people. He's given you a place. He's given you a purpose. Now there's a temptation in all of our lives, to, especially in our culture today, to brag about being self-sufficient. I got myself here. I did it. I did it alone. When people offer to help, we feel shame when we need to accept it. And it's that same desire in our heart to deny God the glory when we say, it's God who has provided for me. It's God who has brought me here. God is worthy because he is provider. I love how in Jeremiah, God gives the people uh, an illustration of this. He talks about how cultures around them are shocked because they've turned from their God to other gods. They're like, no other culture does that. They worship their gods and they deny other ones, but you're quick to turn from your own God. And God says, it's like you've turned from a full glass of water when you're thirsty to one that's full of dirt. It will never satisfy. It will never be enough. You've turned from the true source of provision and turned toward things that were never meant to satisfy. God is the only one who can satisfy. Today, we know that he provides salvation and a full purpose filled life by his son. When we give our lives to him, when we worship him, above all other things, he leads us in the life that we were made to live the life that he designed, a life that will last forever. Our second reason is he's worthy because 
He is the only one who can fully provide. But finally, God is worthy of our worship because he wants a relationship with us. Remember the greatest commandment. God doesn't say, you shall fear me. He doesn't say, you shall obey me. You shall serve me. But instead, he says, you shall love me. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and strength. That basically means everything you have. Love him with all that you've got. Now, obedience, service, and respect come with the package of loving him. But notice that his first priority is love. He wants a relationship with his followers. This is not a request out of desperation. It's not like God's lonely up in heaven looking for a friend. This is for our benefit. God loves you, and he wants you to love him because he offers the best life you could ever live. I did some basic research. I'm not a historian by any means, but I looked at some of the gods of the cultures around them during this time, and I never saw a request like this for when their followers were called to worship them. But instead, uh, their relationship with their worshipers were more for a, a mutual benefit. Something like, I sacrifice to you, you bring water for my crops. Something like that. But it was never something like, you shall love me with all that you have. It was never a call for a relationship. The one true God, the God who is all-knowing and all-powerful, wants a relationship with you. He loves you. This is demonstrated by the fact that he sent his son for us to save us and give us a new, full, and eternal life through him. God is worthy of worship because he loves us and he has our best in mind. This makes Jesus' extreme call for commitment easier to swallow because he cares about our spouses, parents, and kids far more than we do. God is worthy of your worship. Remember the main point. We must worship God in every season. He's the only one worthy of worship. He is faithful to provide. He knows what is best. He cares about each and every one of us. Anything else that tries to claim the mantle of God in your life, the idol, not the idol, the altar of your heart, (laughs) anything else that tries to claim this spot will fail you. It will not deliver. It was never meant to. As life's seasons start flying at us, will we take hold of God? Now we have to remember that God's provision and protection, it won't always look like how we expect it. It might not be a million bucks in the bank. I'm sorry. But it might be providing enough to get through financially trying times. Maybe even as a gift from someone else. It might not mean a clean bill of health, but it's a promise of life after death. God's provision is on his terms and his timing. Not our own. But it's better than anything we could come up with on our own. Maybe for some of us, we're angry at God because we've had rotten seasons in life. Maybe we've had experiences of loss, the loss of a job, job, a loved one, disappointments, or some other tragedy at the hands of others, and we blame God because he didn't step in. Maybe we're experiencing consequences of decisions that we've made and wondered how a loving God would let us go through this hardship. These are hard questions to answer and they might take some time for us to truly process, but I will say this. Sometimes God uses the consequences of our poor poor decisions to draw us to him. 
He uses new seasons, good and bad, to reveal where we've been looking to hope that is not him. And he doesn't step in to punish every evil because there is a final day coming where he will set everything right. And every day that we're given that is not that final day is a sign of his grace and patience. That he wants as many people to find life in him rather than separation away from him as possible. Parents and grandparents, students, bosses, employees, husbands and wives. I pray that we can learn to worship God in every season. To look to him in hope rather than to other things. He is worthy of your worship. He will never leave you. He will provide for you on his terms. He will bring you fulfillment and purpose. No matter what you face, he will never let you down. New seasons reveal what you worship. What do you look to for hope? Remember how you got to the point you were at. What does your new season say about you and what you worship? What do we do with this? First of all, I'd encourage you, whether this is the first time you're hearing this or whether you've been walking with God for a while, the first one is this, give God all of you. Give him a chance. He will not let you down. Give him your life today. He is worthy of it. I love the example we had of this with the baptisms we've had this summer. Of uh, anyone who wants to follow Jesus saying, I belong to him. Everything I have, everything I do is his. Maybe for some of us, we need to identify the idols and the false gods that we've given place on the altars of our hearts. Again, Kyle Eidelman, he actually, he, he created some questions to kind of help us identify these idols. What, what do we look to for hope? And it's this, what has left you disappointed? What do you sacrifice your time and money to? What are you worried about? Where do you go when you're hurt or need comfort? What makes you mad? What do you dream of? Now, every answer to this might not be a God that's in your life. But if you turn to other things when you experience these emotions rather than God, it might be a sign that you've put other things on the altar of your heart. If I can encourage you with anything, turn to God instead. He is enough. He is the only one who can provide for you. But finally this, learn his instructions and follow them. Remember that promise that your life may go well with you, that you may live a good life. This means worship and community. Going to things like Sunday school, small groups, or even our right now media, looking to know his instructions and obey them. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you that you are worthy of our worship. We thank you that you provide. The book of James tells us that every good and perfect thing comes from you. God, I pray that as we experience new seasons, you help us keep our eyes on you. You help us identify where we've been looking to for hope that is not you. Help us correct that. God, I pray that whatever point we're at, whether it's good or bad, we're able to see how you've been moving in spite of the bad and you've been moving through the good as well. Lord, we pray that you are glorified with our lives and we pray this all in your name. Amen.